Scripture reading this morning is from uh, Philippians chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi, with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. I should have stayed up here. Thank you, Charlie. So uh, today we begin this series in the book of Philippians, and uh, it's um, going to be an exciting series. We um, are going to be looking at joy. I mean, this is, this is the theme of this book. More, more specifically, the Apostle Paul in this letter reveals to us that we can have a deep abiding joy, uh, not just a superficial kind of a smile on our face all the time joy, but a deep abiding joy. Uh, uh, despite horrific circumstances, despite wherever we may find ourselves. Because, you know, Paul, when he's writing this apostle of joy, is sitting in in, in a prison cell in Rome. And so we have to think about that, right? Uh, That's around 62 AD when when he's writing this. Now, Now, Charles Spurgeon says about this epistle, he says, this epistle was written by Paul when he was in prison with iron fetters about his wrists. Yet there is no iron in the epistle. It is full of light, life, love, and joy, blended with traces of sorrow, yet with a holy delight that rises above his grief. And so that's uh, what we're going to be looking at as we go through this series. Now, I know that we have read just a couple of verses, and many of you are excited because you think, wow, this is wonderful. Two verses, early lunch, all that good stuff, (laughs) but not so fast. Um, I really don't know how long this sermon is going to be, honestly. Just, it's a different style of preaching I'm going to be doing today. But um, we're going to be looking at, at the history of Philippi. I want to give some background before we dive into this book. That's why we just read that introduction, and we know who it's written by, written by Paul to the Philippians. And uh, I want to go back to the history of Philippi. So let's notice that this morning real quick. Just look at the history of this city uh, of Philippi. Now, the ancient city of Philippi is in eastern Macedonia. And um, it was situated near the head of the Aegean Sea at the foot of Mount Orbelus. And uh, the area was known for gold, right? And we should have a picture of that for you to be looking at, I think. Is it? Okay, that's okay. But it's, uh, it's, it was known for gold and silver mines, very lucrative area. Um, in ancient times, Philippi was known as Crenides. Crenides was the name of this city. It was, that means fountains because they had so many nice freshwater um, springs around, around this, this city. So it was Crenides. Around 358 BC, the Thracians invaded this place. And uh, the people of Cride, the, or, or Crenides, the Crenidians, or whatever you want to call them, they needed help. So they reached out to a fellow by the name of Philip II, king of Macedonia. And they said, can you help us out? We're being invaded here, and we are going to need some help. So knowing of the wealth and so forth, sure, I'll help. So King Philip came, and he definitely did the job, ran the Thracians out. But then when he saw all the nice gold mines and the, the nice wealth, he took over the city <laughs> and named it after himself in honor of himself. So that's how Philippi 
uh, got its name from King Philip II, king of Macedonia. And, 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 and the, the, the wealth was astounding, really. He, he, he redid the silver mines and the gold mines, and man, the wealth that was pouring in made him dream. And he dreamed of uniting all of Greece and taking over the world because he said, man, this is, we've got everything we need here. Um, now, his untimely death cut all of that short, but his son picked up his vision and kept it going. And his son's name, you'll recognize, was a little guy named Alexander the Great. And he pretty much succeeded at that dream of taking over most of the known world. He poured a lot of money into this little city of Philippi that was named after after his father. And it became a showpiece uh, of Greek, um, you know, archaeology and and so forth. And um, even today, you can see the theater they've uncovered and the forum has been uncovered. There's a lot of of, it's one of the greatest cities you can see of the ancient biblical times now that's been excavated. Um, Now in 168 BC, the Romans come along and they conquer the Macedonians and uh, Philippi became an important city for them. The Via uh, Ignatia, the Via Ignatia is, uh, is a trade route that runs from Rome all the way to the east and it goes right through Philippi. So literally the main street of Philippi is the Via Ignatia. So this was a very important trade center, very important cultural center um, for the Romans. Now move on up to 42 BC and we have the famous Battle of Philippi. The Battle of Philippi, you may have heard about this. Uh, This is when Mark Antony and Octavian defeated the traitors Brutus and Cassius. They killed Julius Caesar. And so there was a civil war basically that erupted in Rome during this time. And the big battle was fought there at Philippi that really made the difference because now Rome, instead of being a republic, became an empire. It was the empire of Rome. This really went a long way to institute emperor, the emperor cult, the cult of worshiping the emperor. And uh, even the memory of Julius Caesar be, 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 began to be worshiped. And this leads to the great persecution of Christians who would not bow the knee to Caesar or, or worship a man as, as God. But, but what happened is these, after that battle, this city became a Roman colony with all the rights and privileges thereof. They didn't have to pay taxes anymore to Rome. They, there was a lot more um, uh, uh, of grace given to them. They had the same law that Rome had. They, they were basically, it was about 800 miles from Rome. So it was like an outpost of Rome, very Rome, right? Uh, matter of fact, Roman soldiers began to retire here. It was a great destination for retirement. They were given much land and houses to live in. And, and so it became a hub for the Roman soldiers. So when you think about it, by the time that Paul uh, comes along around 52 AD, this is a very diverse area, right? You've got, you've got a population of, of Thracians from the past that, that lived in the area. You've got Greeks. You've got retired Italian Roman soldiers. You've got Asians, and you've got a few Jews, but not many. So you've got a pretty good group here. So as I said, Paul comes along around 52 AD, and uh, he came to, to this city on his second missionary journey, all right? Paul had three missionary journeys, and this was on his second journey. Now, we're going to look at this. So what we're going to do, your hopes will be dashed right now, as I announced that we're going to go to the book of Acts, We're going to be spending our time in the book of Acts because Luke records for us the history of the Philippian church and how it was started. And I think it's good for us before we jump into the book of Philippians to kind of see this background and what God did there in 
Philippi. So we're going to look at Acts chapter 16, verses 1 through 40. And I am going to preach every one of them, so relax. It's good for you to know, dash all of your hopes for an early lunch. And now let's focus on, on the Word of God, right? So here it is, beautiful, beautiful to watch God's providence. Acts 16, we'll take it up in verse 1, where it says this. Paul came also to Derby and to Lystra. A disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. He was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. All right? And it's going to be this way throughout. Um, the, the, the text is my notes. That's why I'm not sure how long the sermon will go, but the, the text is my notes. Um, but I do want to say, very interesting here, because... This idea of circumcising Timothy, what we see here is this contextualization idea, like in missions, where you go, when you're trying to reach people and there's different cultures going on, well, here you've got this new thing called Christianity, and you've got predominantly Jewish people hearing it first, and circumcision is a pretty big thing for the Jewish people, right? And the, the Council of Jerusalem has said they don't, people don't have to be circumcised to, to come into the faith. But what Paul is doing here, you've got this young Timothy who is, is the, the very pastor that Paul writes Timothy to. Um, and Paul wants to take him on this trip. And people are watching. And so Paul says, you know, just for the sake of not offending everybody right off the bat, we're going to go ahead and do this. Because it's, it's, it's a thing of saying, hey, let's just be above board here and, and do what we can do. And uh, I'm sure Timothy's thinking, Paul, there's got to be a better way. But at any rate, he went ahead and did that for the sake of contextualizing. To say, hey, we, we can show that we're not going to cause a fight over this because we've got something even bigger. We want you to repent of all of your good works and worship at the temple and trusting in Christ and him alone. We'd rather talk about that first. And that's why Paul uh, did this. But notice, it says, as they went on their way through the cities, they delivered to them for observance the decisions that had been reached by the apostles and the elders who were in Jerusalem. That's the Jerusalem council that I mentioned just a moment ago. So the churches were strengthened in the faith and they increased in numbers daily. So what churches? The churches that Paul established on his first missionary journey. That was the whole reason that he wanted to go on this second missionary journey was to go check on the believers and to see how the churches were, were prospering and how they were doing. Now, notice what happens. Paul has a plan, and, he, and it's, it's to, to go where he wants to go. <laughs> He's got a plan, going toward Asia and, and maybe uh, more up north. And, and yet, look at Acts 16, 6 through 10. This is glorious. And they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been, now look at this, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. So that shows us that there was obviously the plan of Paul to move further east into Asia, and yet he was providentially hindered by who? The Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit. He was forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. So mark that in your mind. And when, as a matter of fact, if you've got your Bibles, which is a good thing to do, uh, you can circle Holy Spirit there or just make a mark there. Now, look what he says here. He was forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And when they had come to Mysia, they attempted to go to Bithynia. That was his next plan. Let's go to Bithynia. But the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. 
put a mark by the spirit of Jesus. So now what we see is this, this providence, right? Paul has his plans, and yet God is saying, that's okay, Paul, but I have the plan, <laughs> and, and you're going to do what I want you to do. And so God is working these circumstances out, and Paul's understanding that, and Luke, who, who is with him, and Timothy, and we'll talk about all that later, but um, they're realizing God's working here. You know, there is no such thing as happenstance when you understand the sovereign God of the universe. So, so notice what else happens here. So passing by Mysia, they went down to Troas. I'm sure Paul has another plan to go somewhere else, but look at this. And a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there urging him and saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. Hmm. Now listen to this. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go unto Macedonia. And here's why. Concluding that God, circle God, had called us to preach the gospel to them. So man, alive. No one can read these verses and deny that God providentially leads his people. That he intervenes by his, whatever means he wants to intervene. That he changes our paths when, when they need to be changed. And he leads us where he wants us to go. And as a matter of fact, when we look at this, the theme here, it's not the geographical direction that's important in this section but the providential direction, that's the main point, right? That's what, that's what the writer is showing us. It's, it's about the providence of God here, not so much the geographical uh, direction they were going, but the providential direction. And notice this, we've got the whole Godhead here, right, mentioned. You've got, in verse six, the Spirit, the Holy Spirit. In verse seven, you've got the Spirit of Jesus, Jesus the Son. And then in verse 10, you've got God the Father. So the Godhead is directing these, these men. And again, just showing you again the, 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 the unity of Father, Son, and Spirit. Just like in our salvation, God the Father planned our salvation, of, the plan of redemption. He planned it all out. Christ the Son came and purchased our, our salvation. And the Spirit of God moves us and opens our eyes and draws us to Christ and seals us into the day of redemption. So they're, they're, they're all, all of the Godhead working in all things, just as in creation. All right. Here we go. Hang in there with me. So, so I, I guess this, this disappointment that Paul faces, because I'm sure he's disappointed. Paul's a type A guy, right? He's driven, as we know Paul. He's driven, he's got his thoughts. But this may have been a disappointment, but what is the disappointment to us is, again, we've got to remember this, is a divine appointment by God. Our disappointments are God's divine appointments. And when we rest in that, the sooner we rest in that, the much more peaceful we'll live life <laughs> and we'll stop kicking against what God's doing. But notice this here. Here's where we get into the nitty gritty now. This is exciting. So we have no question then that it was God's providential plan to move this missionary journey from going east into Asia and moving it north into Europe. That's where Philippi is. So here we see in the next few verses, the very first conversion, Christian conversion in Europe. Without a question, we can unequivocally say this, that the very first person in Europe to ever trust Jesus, we're about to see here in verses 11 through 13. So let's pick it up where it's at here. Here it goes. So setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace and the following day to Neapolis and from there to Philippi. 
which is uh, the leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. So again, this all matches history and exactly what's going on in that time period. We know by this time it is a Roman colony indeed. It's very Roman. We remain in this city some days. Okay, so they're, they're there before they're, they're, they're here. We don't know how long they're going to be here uh, initially. Um, I, well, we don't know how long they were there. Probably months, many months as they're establishing this church. But after they were there some days, it says, on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside where we supposed there was a place of prayer. And we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. All right. Now, here's the key. This is interesting because Paul's custom when he went to a city was to go to the synagogue and to reason with them about Christ being the Savior, right? It was already, it was perfect, right? It was a, a gathered group of people. He could come in as a guest speaker, and then he would proclaim to them that Christ fulfilled every one of those Old Testament pictures and types, and that Christ is the Savior. He is the Messiah and so forth. But here's the problem. We're way, way far from Jerusalem. We're, we're way out here in this little Roman colony. It's very Roman. You've got a bunch of retired Roman soldiers for the most part populating this place. So it's very, very Greek and Roman. There's not many Jewish people here. How do we know that? He couldn't find a synagogue. What does it take to have a synagogue in a city? Well, this, the, the, the rabbis tell us that it takes at least 10 men, heads of households, 10 Heads of households, 10 men. He, there were not even 10 Jewish men living in Philippi. So there was no synagogue. Now, there were some converted Jews, those who, who had been proselyted, and most of them were women, evidently. And so he knew if there's no synagogue, then the next thing we do is we establish a place of prayer so that we can continue to, to, to worship God that way. And so he said that would probably be by the river, and that's what he was expecting to find. As it says here, he went to the riverside where he supposed there was a place of prayer. And sure enough, when he gets there, he sees these women who have gathered. Isn't that interesting? Again, wow, there's a lot of preaching here that we could go off on. I, this is a very dangerous thing I'm doing today. But, but you've got this idea of, wow, why was it just women? Where were the men? And, and sad but true, in most of uh, Christianity, in, in many solid uh, Bible-preaching churches, that's been the question for years. Where are the men? And I must give a little shout out here to women. This is just the way, amen. This is just the way it is that for many, many years in many different locations, if it were not for the faithful women gathering in a church, that church would not exist. So, so wow, what a grateful thing we see here that at least these women are, they're worshiping God. They're proselytes to Judaism and they're at least coming to pray to God. And uh, uh, it, that's, that, that's the, the very, the very essence, the very, the, the very seed of this church that will begin to grow here in Philippi. So again, man, that's for us. By, by the way, we are the ones to be leading our families. We are the ones to be leading that charge, faithful, serving God. Um, and yet, this is what's happening here in Philippi. Now look at this. What happens? All right, this is, this is good stuff. Just get, let's all gather at the river now, right? We're all here. Let's get into this. You've got to see this. Verse 14. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods, who was a worshiper of God. 
The Lord opened her. Okay, let's stop back there. Let's stop before we get to that. Let's just stop that she was a worshiper of God and she was from Thyatira. That's in Asia. Now, remember the trade route from Rome goes right through Philippi, going to the east toward Asia. And so this woman was in the business of purple dyes. She, she was in the, the, the business of this purple dye of clothing and material. And, and that was very expensive. That purple dye was, was just outrageously expensive. And it shows that this woman's a very prominent, well-to-do businesswoman, an entrepreneur who, who's actually moved to get closer to Rome and in the center of that trade traffic to, to increase her business. But she also is a proselyte to Judaism because that's not what they're doing in the East. There, there's not many Jewish people in the Far East worshiping Jehovah God. So she is somewhere along the way at least gone far enough. She's not a Christian. She doesn't believe in the Messiah yet. She doesn't believe in Christ. But somewhere along the way, she has come far enough to say, no, the one true God is Jehovah. And, and, and so, so there she is. She's, she's worshiping God. She's a worshiper of God and this is so much we got to realize here, folks. Do you realize you can be a worshiper of God and not know Jesus? It's, it's that way around the world right now. There are people worshiping God all over the place without the knowledge of who the Savior really is. It's just called religion. And all of us are made as human beings with the need to worship something. So we are worshipers at heart because God made us that way to worship him. Then again, because of our sinful nature in the fall, we begin to worship everything other than him. But here we see God moving in the lives of people. We see the providential work of this woman, Lydia, as God is moving him, her step by step towards himself. So what happens here? This is glorious. So Paul gathers there with these, these women, these faithful who are worshipers of God, and look what it says. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. Wow, what a verse we could spend all day, all week on. I mean, look at the power here. What's going on? The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what Paul said. And this is just, we can't get past that, folks. Jesus said, except the Spirit draw them, no man will come to the Father. No man can come to the Father except the Spirit draw them. And that's what we see here. That unless the Lord opens our hearts to pay attention to what God says, we will not heed his instructions. Thank God for his grace. But, and, and look what, how we see this was efficacious. And it always will be. When the Spirit of God does a work in the heart of a dead human being, making them alive to hear and be able to pay attention to the beautiful gospel of God's grace, it is efficacious. It's effectual every time. And look what happened here. The evidence of that working in her heart through the gospel is that it says after that, and after she heard and paid attention, she was baptized and her household as well. So this is just simply, again, that, that the truth, the teaching of what we see in the early church, that the custom is we preach the gospel, people, by God's grace, hear the gospel, they trust in the gospel, so they, they become disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ, and then they are baptized as an outward symbol to show everybody that I am not ashamed to identify with Jesus Christ as the Savior. I believe he died and was buried and rose again for me. And I show that in my public 
baptism and, and testimony. And so that's what she did and her whole household. And, and so look, this is, this is glorious. Her whole attitude is just one of hospitality and grace to the apostles now. Notice what it says. And, and, after she, she was, and, and after that, she was baptized and her whole household as well. She urged us saying, if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. She did not take no for an answer. She was an Italian grandmother telling you to eat, eat more. You don't say no, right? And, and that's what Paul says. We couldn't turn her hospitality away. She was demanding this. Now, think about this. This prominent businesswoman from Asia. We don't know what her, 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 her attitude was before her salvation. She may have been a very, very aloof a little bit, maybe standoffish, maybe a little scared or whatever. But man, after, after salvation, she's, she's inviting the, this traveling group to, to stay with her in her house. Now, that would consist of Paul, Silas, Timothy, uh, and, and, and possibly Luke, because Luke talks here in the plural many times. We did this, we did that. So, so what an exciting group of people to have in their house. Wouldn't you like that? Have Paul, Timothy, Silas, and Luke. And she invites them. And again, she was rich. The purple dye, amazingly scarce in, 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 the, in the West, came out of the East. She brings her business. She's got it. She, she probably has the, the, the most property in Philippi and the biggest house. And so God, again, in his providence, sets the church up right there. Probably, without a question, the, the church in Philippi began meeting in Lydia's house. Now look at this. That's glorious, by the way. What a glorious picture of what God is doing and what, what he's doing is Paul is led here. He begins to preach the gospel is what Paul does. I mean, that's a given. You know what, Paul, you just point Paul in a direction and send him and you, the, the rest is this given. He's preaching the gospel. He's going to preach Christ and him crucified. And so that's what happened here. And God did the rest. He converted people to himself. He saved souls by the gospel. And now this church is being established. But when God begins to move in this world, even though he is all sovereign, the devil, he's never, he doesn't learn his lesson. I mean, he's defeated. The Satan is powerless after the cross, but he's like that wounded enemy who keeps fighting back, right? And so he will always attack. Whenever God begins to do a work of grace and point people to the gospel of Christ, and wherever Christ is being glorified, Satan begins to fight. That will happen in every century. It will happen in this church. When we begin to see people coming to know Christ and people obeying him and, and being baptized and growing in the word and becoming disciples, Satan will try his best to bring division and some kind of confusion and get our eyes off of the glorious truth of the gospel of Christ. And that's what kind of happens. Here we see verses 16 through 18, another exciting, an, an exciting stage of the story. So we know what's going on at this time. They're practicing their religion of Christianity. They're, they're coming to know Christ. They're going to the river to, to pray. They're, they're meeting in Lydia's house. So there's a little bit of that going on, obviously. And, and verse 16 picks up by saying, as we were going to the place of prayer. So this is sometime past the first story we've heard uh, with Lydia's conversion and her whole household. And we don't know how many other people Maybe some of her employees and so forth also heard the gospel and were baptized and, and were now living for Christ. So time has passed, but one day, as we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune-telling. 
She followed Paul and us crying out, these men are servants of the most high God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. Now, it says this she kept doing for many days. Now you would think that a free PR person with you would be a good deal, right? Uh, you think this, this demon-possessed girl running down the streets saying, these are servants of the most high God and they're proclaiming to you the way of salvation. It's very interesting then how Paul reacts. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out of her that very hour. Now, why would Paul do that? I mean, he had this free advertisement. Was, was, the, was the demon, demon lion lying? Demon lying? No, they were servants of the most high God. And they were, they were proclaiming the way of salvation. What was the problem here? Well, first and foremost, the term most high God was an ancient Hebrew name for, for God, yes, no question about that. But it was also, by this time in history, a name used by pagans to talk about their God. And especially in the Greek and Roman world, referred to Zeus, the most high God for most pagans if they hear that, they're not thinking Jehovah God. There's hardly any Jews in this area. It's all pagan Greeks and Romans. So when they hear most high God, they're thinking Zeus. Some are beginning to think Caesar, but they're not thinking Jehovah God. And a way of salvation? Well, the Greeks and Romans had many saviors during this time, many redeemers, they called them. Any, any hero of war, battle, Roman general would be a savior and, and show the way of salvation. And so the point is they were speaking truth, but because of contextuality again, because of where they were, Paul knew there'd be great confusion. They, she was doing more harm in that sense by just spouting out things that could be true without getting into the depth of the gospel. And this, again, is why preaching the whole counsel of God is so important. Not just taking a little bit about God and throwing that out there and saying, oh, I'm a Christian because I say this and this. No, we have to preach the whole counsel of God. We have to preach the entire gospel. And that's what Paul understood. He knew that I am going to explain to the people in succinct order from the Old Testament how that Christ fulfills all of the prophecies and he is the Messiah and what his blood sacrifice on the cross did and why we needed it and all of that. This girl is going to kind of mess that up because people will be so confused. Are we representing Zeus? Are we talking about some war hero? So you see, that's why he said, no, 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 demon, be quiet. Python, by the way, was, was the name or symbol given to the famous uh, Delphic Oracle that many people during this time knew about. By the way, fortune telling, looking into the future, mediums, people today reading your fortune, some people seeming to have this gift of, of looking ahead in time and, and talking about events that actually happen. Folks, that's not false. Sometimes it is. I mean, there's a majority of hucksters out there, con men, they can play that game pretty well as well. But some of that is real. And it's totally demonic. And it's been going on since the beginning of time. And that's what we see a picture here. This girl did have a track record of telling the future. And people paid her owners 
handsomely to hear that because demons know what's going on and they can even create things to happen, uh, cause events. Now, yes, God is provident of all things, but he uses all means for his ultimate providence, even bad things and, and brokenness and evil. And so we can see how even the demonic forces can be involved in telling you, hey, this is going to happen on this day, and it does. Python, by the way, was the, was the symbol. And so this spirit of divination would have been a spirit of, 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 of Python. In the Greek, by the way, the reason I'm saying that, when it said she had the spirit of divination, the Greek word there is Puthin, where we get the word Python, which, which that's what the Greeks would have said. She has the spirit of the serpent of the Greek oracle. And Paul <laughs> put a stop to this. So the money bags dried up for the owners, the people that were using this girl to make all their livelihood. Paul delivers her from that bondage. I have no question she's converted. Every time a, a, a demon is, is cast out and the, and the apostles preach or Christ preaches, I believe there's freedom there in him. I think there's salvation. I think it's, that's redemption. So we can call her the, the, the next convert story that we see here in this book. But when the demons are gone, so is the money-making machine. And these guys are upset. So notice what happens. They're angry. Paul is taking their business away, their profits. By the way, they obviously didn't care about this girl personally. They only cared about the money. And what a picture this is today, again, of, of the delivery that's needed for sex traffickers who are trafficking and, and, and young girls who are their slave for their, 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 their money. Again, there's this unrighteousness, but nothing's new under the sun to taking advantage of less fortunate, taking advantage of people for your own gain. That's called sin. That's depravity. It's, there's nothing new under, under the sun. But the answer, the only answer, by the way, as we see here, is the gospel, is Christ, who has the authority over all of that. So now look what happens, though. Sorry, again, it's going to be a great day. Notice verse 19, what happens. But when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. That marketplace is available today, the forum. The old uh, forum in Philippi has just been uncovered. And if you ever take a trip out to the, uh, that, that part of the country, you can actually see this. But here they are. They bring them to that place, the forum, out where, uh, where the leaders would be. Um, and when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, these... Okay, look at the accusations. Notice these three accusations that these, these owners of this, this poor girl bring against Paul. Their main anger with them, their main problem we know, they took our moneymaker. What do you know? They, they delivered her from demon possession. Boo-hoo. That's our money. They didn't care about her, but that's what they were mad about. But notice what they charge. Notice what they use here. Where are we in the world here, Philippi? It's predominantly populated by Greeks and Romans. The Romans do not like Jewish people now, especially in Jerusalem and those areas. Soon, the emperor will, will cast out all Christians from Jerusalem. So we're in, the, we're in a hotbed right now of basically what we would call today racism going on here. The Romans hate Jews. 
And I think these leaders know they can stir up, a, they can get the hearing of the magistrates if, they, if their first charge against these, these men, here it is, notice it, let's read it together. They seized Paul and Silas, dragged them before the marketplace, before the rulers, and when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, these men are Jews. <laughs> now, what did that really have to do with the whole problem? Nothing, but they knew that would get the attention right away and garner up hatred. And that's exactly uh, what it does. These men are Jews, number one. Number two, they are disturbing our city. <laughs> and number three, here's the big one. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. That one gets a little bit closer to the truth, but really all of these are unfounded. All of these accusations are false in the sense that there was no disturbing. Paul was not there to be a rebel rouser. He wasn't trying to incite a riot. He wasn't, he wasn't forcing anybody to proselyte. He was, yes, he was preaching the truth. And yet, what happens? They, uh, uh, the crowd joined in attacking them. The crowd joined in. Why? Because they knew how to whip the crowd up. And the way they did that right away was to show a, a difference, to make, to, to make a division. These are Jews. We're Romans. Enemies. Again, the age-old Marxist idea of dividing people based on some kind of outward look or ethnicity, or status, to make enemies. Again, it's Satan's oldest trick to just divide people and cause this anger uh, against people. So the crowd joins in, attacking them as well, and the magistrates tore their garments off uh, uh, and, and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into the prison, ordering, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. <laughs> And the word safely here doesn't mean, you know, be safe, keep them nice and comfortable. It just means very securely. Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet to the stocks. So he put them in a prison inside of a prison, maximum security, if you will, and fastened their feet and hands to the stocks, which were attached to the wall. They weren't going anywhere. But what an amazing picture here. The, the, the suffering that Paul, Silas are taking here represents that of Christ, because this beating, the, the rod, is, a, is, is representative of the very thro thronging and, and, and flogging, rather, that Christ endured by the Romans. So they were beaten with many, many blows. Then they were thrown into prison, and then they were fastened in, in wooden uh, stocks. Man, injustice, right? False, no, no, no trial by the way. There was no real justice here. It was just a mob rule. And here they are, beaten and sitting in a prison. <laughs> now notice the reaction. Here's the, here's the joy, right? I'm checking that clock. Okay. Look at verse 25. About midnight, Paul and Silas were crying Complaining, why, why us? We can't catch a break. Oh man, it's no good to be a Christian. No, look at it. No, it wasn't that. <laughs> About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. Paul and Silas were having church at midnight in a dungeon after being beaten, bloodied, and put in stocks, and they're praising God. And they're singing to each, to, to, each, to each other and to God. 
And the prisoners were listening to them. And you know Paul's preaching in between there. There's no question, right? Is they got this captive audience. <laughs> and, 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 and so they're, they're fine, basically. Paul's just worshiping God, preaching the gospel, singing hymns. But look, suddenly there was a great earthquake so that the foundations of the prison were shaken and, uh, and immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's bonds were unfastened. Wow. Direct intervention by God here, no question. I know many liberal theologians were, oh, it's just a freak uh, earthquake that happened. Wait a minute, most earthquakes that I know don't unlock people's shackles. <laughs> this is, this is a, a, an amazing picture of supernatural intervention by the sovereign God of the universe. Without a question. Love this. Now look at verse 27. When the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. And you better believe he did, especially that little hint giving at the beginning when he awoke. <laughs> He's a Roman soldier, a Roman guard on duty in a prison, and he's sleeping. And he wakes up and guess what? Prison doors are all open. And he's thinking, good night. They've escaped on my watch and I was sleeping. I'm dead. There's no, I'm not going to let Caesar kill me. I'll do it now. And that's what he does. He drew his sword about to kill himself. But Paul cried out with a loud voice, do not harm yourself. For we are all here. And the jailer called for the lights and rushed in. And trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. What an amazing picture. I mean, I believe without a question that Paul had something to do with the fact that these other prisoners did not hightail it out of there. I believe it was, it, was, it, was, it was he who said, no, man, we stay, we wait. Trust me, the God who delivered us this far, is gonna, he's got a plan. There's a purpose in all this. None of them left. The man amazed. He didn't lose any prisoners. He's amazed. He's freaking out. He runs in, falls on his knees before Paul and Silas. Now look at verse 30. Here we have the, the third conversion story we see of this prison guard. Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? Now, why would he say that? Why would a Roman soldier steeped in paganism even know how to say, what must I do to be saved? Well, here's how. He fell asleep listening to Paul preach the gospel. He heard him singing. He heard him praying. He heard him preaching. He had by this point understood, here's what these guys believe. Well, buddy boy, now he believes it. He's seen the evidence of that sovereign God, and he comes to them and says, Sirs, what must I do to be delivered, to be saved? And look what he says. And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved, you and your household. And look, here's the key here. It's not just this, this generic, oh, believe in God. Just know that he exists. No, 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 there's more. Look what it says. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him. They continue to say what that means to believe on Christ. They explain it. Same with Lydia. Same with their households. This idea of the households, look, look, and they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. So I think it's just the same re repetition of what happened to Lydia. Although all the details weren't given in Lydia's conversion, the same thing would happen here. So it's the same thing. Paul says, repent and believe on the Lord. Let me explain what that means. And I'll, I'll preach the gospel in a more, more robust way to your whole family. And, and look what happens. And he, 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 he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds. This is the jailer now. Something's happened as they've heard the gospel. There's a transformation. 
They've been saved by the grace of God. This jailer now takes these prisoners and washes their wounds. And, and, and he was baptized at once. He and all his family. So again, what's the order here? They heard the gospel. It was explained to them fully. They believed and were baptized. He and all his family. Then he brought them up into his house and set food before them. And he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God, that he had come to this truth of who Christ is and who God is and what salvation is. And, and they're rejoicing now. <laughs> I'm telling you, prison guards do not bring prisoners home and wash their clothes and feed them. This is, this is the, uh, hospitality that comes from believing and putting himself at risk even now for the gospel. I believe then, without a question, he took him back to jail after that because of the context that we see next. Notice verse 35. But when it was day, the magistrates sent the police saying, let those men go. And the jailer reported the, these words to Paul saying, well, the magistrates have sent to let you go. Therefore, come out now and, and go in peace. So good news, right? Well, not so fast. But Paul said to them, they have beaten us publicly, uncondemned, men who are Roman citizens. Whoop, 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 whoop. Alarm bells go off and have thrown us into prison. And do they now throw us out in secret? No. Let them come themselves and take us out. The police reported these words to the magistrates, and they were afraid when they heard that they were Roman citizens. Paul was born in Tres. He was a Rome by birth, Roman by birth. He was a Jew. Jewish by blood, but Roman citizen by birth. Silas was also evidently a Roman citizen, and they were protected by the law. And you did not arrest a Roman without a trial. You, you, you definitely did not beat them, and you did not throw them into prison. This is bad news for the magistrates who say, oh, we're going to lose our rulership here in Philippi. Rome's going to come down on us for not keeping its laws. And this is amazing. So look, so, so, so they came and apologized to them. And they took them out and asked them to leave the city. <laughs> they requested that very politely. Would you please leave the city? So, so they went out of the prison and visited Lydia. And when they had seen the brothers, they encouraged them and departed. The end. But what, what an amazing thing, right? What, a, what an amazing history of how the church at Philippi began. And that little group, by the way, that little nucleus of, of people You've got a prison guard and an Asian businesswoman and a demon-possessed girl. That's the core of the church of Philippi. Now, we look at this and we say, why, was, why did Paul act that way with the government there toward the end? I just wanted to do a very quick thing. I know we're going to be late, but this is, why did he do that? Was it arrogance? No. Paul was, we, we know Paul. He didn't care about his own reputation. Paul was concerned about the new church, though. And, and literally what he did here in this situation, he held the government officials accountable to their own laws. He said, wait a minute, this is unjust. And he's thinking, man, if I, if I let them see, if they can secretly beat me for no reason as a Roman citizen and, and, and then make me sneak out by night like nothing happened, mm -mm. 
And then this poor church has to grow up under that kind. No, I'm going to stand up and say, wait a minute, this is wrong. And and what Paul's saying is while there's laws in place to protect that religious liberty, I'll, I'll stand for those and say, wait a minute, this is what you say we can do. This is what your, quote, constitution says we can do. That's what Paul was doing here. He's simply saying, and he was simply doing what all Christians are called to do. I'm not going to preach. This is a whole message, by the way. I'm not going to do that. I'm just saying this. We're called as Christians not only to obey those in government over us as, as they obey God, but we're called to hold them accountable as deacons or servants of God. That's who they are. And that's what Paul's saying. Just to be, he's saying be consistent with the very laws that, that are on your books about liberty and freedom. And, and that's what he did. He stood up. But anyway, look at this. Takeaways. And we got to hurry. Here's the quick takeaway. Basically, what Paul is going to show us to do the book of Philippians as we get back there. And we've seen it lived out in Acts when Luke recorded his whole life there. There's joy in trusting and obeying Christ. There really is. There's joy in trusting and obeying Christ. I mean, our focus cannot be on our circumstances. Our joy is not dependent upon our physical, material, or our financial conditions. That's what this shows us. Paul and Silas were hooping it up, whooping it up, or whatever you want to call it, in the prison. They had a joy, a contentment that could not be taken away from them. And that's what, that's what we learned in the book of Habakkuk, is it not? I mean, our contentment and joy comes from knowing and obeying our Savior. So, so just as Habakkuk knew that terrible things were coming, he knew who God was. Remember, I'm just going to close with those three things. Again, because the same thing that, that Habakkuk did is what Paul and Silas have done. He remembered who God was. He remembered who he was as a child of God. And he remembered that God had made him some promises. So nobody could take those away. And it didn't matter where I was in this world. I win. That's the attitude Paul has in Silas. And, and this is also the same thing um, that we must do. Stop looking at our surroundings. Stop worrying about so much the circumstances and get back to remember who God is. He's the God who moved Paul and Silas into that mess. He providentially put them in Philippi knowing they'd be beaten, knowing they'd be put in prison, falsely accused. God knows those things. What, what, what was their reaction? They trusted that God. They trusted. And just like Job, they said, though he slay us, yet will we trust him. We're not going to stop. Because we know ultimately that all things work together for our good and for his glory. And that's what we have today to rest in because God's given us this word. He's, he's, that church in Philippi, by the way, is our direct ancestors because the gospel went to Europe. Guess where the gospel came from here? Europe. <laughs> we are direct ancestors of, of these, our brothers and sisters, who also heard the message that Jesus Christ, there's no other name given among men whereby you must be saved. Rest in him.